Most people in Lincoln, Illinois, didn't lock their doors in the 1970s. They weren't worried about murderers roaming around. Mike Hartnett and his wife arrived in town to work at Lincoln College, a private junior college at the time. Both were ready to counsel Lincoln students, and they wondered how much trouble there could possibly be in this peaceful-looking small town back in 1972. If they'd only known, who knows if they would have gone there at all. I'm so glad that you're here joining me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm Lori Morrison, private investigator, and I want us to tackle another story from the world of true crime, and then we'll see what spiritual and safety tips we can find there. I believe every Christian's calling is to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around, because we're going to talk about practical ways to do just that. This is Season 4, Episode 2. Our book this week is And I Cried Too by Mike Hartnett, and our guest is the chaplain here at The Unlovely Truth, Lori Prather. She grew up near where these murders took place, and I grew up not too far away in the Midwest. We were both pretty sheltered, and stories like this were shocking to say the least. But unfortunately, they are reality as well. So I think we do need to talk about them so we can look for those takeaways that we can get out of the stories to help ourselves and our communities be safer. Remember being off on your own for the very first time, whether that was off at college or getting your first apartment and a full-time job? Everything was new, and we had more responsibility on our shoulders than ever before, right? Most of us rose to the challenge, but there were always a few who just wouldn't accept that it was time to be accountable for what they made of themselves. No matter how many chances they were given, they couldn't, or wouldn't pull themselves together. Those were some of the kids that Mike Hartnett worked with. But he hadn't been told when he accepted his new position how very many chances Lincoln College was willing to give. The school seemed to have a problem keeping enrollment up, so they just kept students on even when those students just couldn't keep their grades up. Worse than that, it seemed like they would also keep almost anyone regardless of their behavioral issues. That would turn out to be a very big mistake that would have a lot of far-reaching consequences. Mike's wife quit her job after just one year to go to another school. Lincoln created a new position for Mike. Now he was in charge of dorm life, so he did still have an awful lot of contact with students. It was a more stressful job than it sounds like. One of his dorm directors tried to break up a drunken fight and was assaulted. And then an art major had a very bad reaction to LSD, and although she lived, She just wasn't able to handle the challenges of even a junior college anymore. At the end of that year, Mike and his staff did something that a lot of groups that work in high-stress environments will do. They blow off steam with humor that anyone that isn't a part of that environment may not really understand and might even find inappropriate. Like the award given in the spring of 1975 to a guy who they decided deserved to be named the student most likely to spend the rest of his life in jail. They couldn't possibly have known how dead-on their choice would be. Lincoln College had recently experienced a tremendous surge in burglaries, and some of the staff were convinced that a student named Russell Smrecker was responsible. It became frustratingly clear that the robberies followed a very specific pattern. Most would occur during campus social or sporting events. The fact that when his dorm was robbed, every room on his floor was hit but his certainly raised a lot of suspicions. Mike asked the dean of students to expel Russell, 
But the dean refused to do that based just on suspicion. If they had, without knowing it, they probably would have saved a few lives. In September of 1975, there was another robbery in one of the dorms. A student's guitar and her roommate's record albums had been stolen. The next morning, a set of students came to Mike with those stolen record albums. They had found yet another student trying to dump them down a garbage chute. It wasn't Russell Smrecker, but a quiet and well-liked student named Mike Mansfield. The students said that Mike had told them he got them from Russell Smrecker. Now, our author, Mike, went to the younger Mike's dorm room to talk with him, and he found a good kid who had made friends with the wrong kind of guy and didn't realize it until he'd gotten in so deep that he just didn't know what to do anymore. I think that's why, in his wisdom, God tells us in Scripture many, many times to be careful about who we surround ourselves with. Mike and another administrator confronted Smrecker, but he denied everything. So a hearing was held by the campus disciplinary board. Rather than relying on the fact that they had no hard evidence against him, Smrecker decided that he would testify. He didn't have to, but he decided to, and he was caught in several lies. That led to him being expelled. Two days later, he was caught shoplifting at a local grocery store. An employee and a customer were witnesses. So now we had three people, the two from the grocery store and Mike Mansfield, who were witnesses against Russell Smrecker for really relatively minor criminal acts. And then before he got a chance to testify against Russell, Mike Mansfield disappeared. Then a local real estate agent named Ruth Martin did as well. She'd been that customer from the grocery store who was supposed to testify against Russell. A few months later, Jay Fry and his pregnant wife, Robin, were murdered in their home. Jay was the grocery store employee who was set to testify against Russell Smrecker at his shoplifting trial. When Russell showed up for that trial, he was arrested. Police worried that family members of the victims might actually try to take matters into their own hands if Smrecker ever got released. They didn't need to worry, though, because a grand jury indicted Russell on multiple counts of murder. Smrecker's girlfriend promptly threatened to kill our author. She said she believed her boyfriend was innocent. Let's not feel too sorry for her getting mixed up with the wrong man. Once, after an argument with her roommate, she'd killed the girl's fish by dumping detergent in their bowl. That sounds to me like she and Russell Smrecker had a lot in common. Smrecker was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to 100 to 300 years in prison for each count to be served consecutively. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of time, but per the sentencing laws in place at the time in Illinois, Smrecker was eligible for parole after serving only nine years of his sentence. Russell Smrecker was never charged with killing Mike Mansfield or Ruth Martin. Their bodies have never been found. In 2011, Smrecker finally admitted to killing them in what was essentially a deathbed confession. He also told police that he had accomplices, though he wouldn't name them. Maybe this was just one last time that Russell Smrecker thought he could manipulate some more people. I mean, we are talking about a man who killed at least four people and an unborn baby over a petty burglary and shoplifting $4 worth of meat. Was he just evil? We're going to talk about that in a moment with Lori Prather, our Unlovely Truth Tribe chaplain. Hey, Lori, it is so great to have you back 
always love to have you as a guest here on The Unlovely Truth because you are our chaplain. You're going to help us wade through some pretty deep theological waters, which I, I don't usually get into. So I'm surprising even myself a little bit here. We're going to talk about the nature of good and evil. What an important topic to talk about because on the face of it, this case just doesn't make sense. This, mm. you know, the violence in this story seems like such an overreaction to the problems that this kid was facing. Wow. And so I just want to talk about, you know, how do we really take what we're taught as believers? Because any of us that are believers, you know, we realize that God wins. Good will triumph over evil in the end. You know, yep. read the book, know how it turns out. But what do we tell people when they ask us, well, if God has the power to do that, to have good triumph over evil, why doesn't he just do that right now? You know, why did any of this have to happen? I feel like every believer and non-believer asks that question at some point. I'm not sure you've really truly explored faith if you haven't had a moment where you go, wow, this doesn't seem to be. And you hear that in the secular world all the time. I think the most common phrase we hear is, well, he's really a loving God, dot, 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 finish that sentence. And it's not an easy answer. And we probably won't be able to cover all the the breadth of it in this one single session. But I think that the foundational answer really comes in two pieces. And one is, like you said, God does win, but sometimes it's not this side of heaven. It's the other side of heaven. And as believers, we have to remember that this is not the whole of the story for us. This is not the entirety of our life or our relationship with God. It continues afterwards in heaven. And, and that's key. The other piece really comes down to having free will. And you know, I heard a great sermon one time that said, let's go worst case scenario. Well, okay, we want free will, but we don't want murders to happen. So if God would just stop murders, okay, well, and this and that, well, then that too. And he's, and it showed like there's a slippery slope of either we get free will or we don't. We don't get to pick and choose the things we want free will on and the things we want God to just wipe out and take care of. That's not how it works. And so we this, want free will. For ourselves. For us. We're just, we don't want everybody else necessarily to have it because, you know, we sit back and think, well, I would never murder somebody. Right. But, okay, what about that time <laughs> that I was really unjustly thinking negative, terrible things about somebody? Absolutely. Or I maybe let some of that slip to someone else. And so then I'm gossiping. Yeah. We like to think, well, God doesn't like that thing over there that that right. person did wrong. But what I did isn't that bad. We don't like to think every single one of us has the capacity for evil in our heart. And you know what? If we didn't, we wouldn't need Jesus. I mean, that's the, <laughs> the exactly. end of it all. Like, that's the whole reason. And I think that being reminded that we live in a broken world and living in a broken world means there are consequences. Sometimes they're really specific to your actions. And sometimes you're faced dealing with the consequences of someone else's actions. But that goes right back to what you're saying, that we don't get to pick and choose. The Bible's pretty clear that God doesn't weigh sin like we tend to as humans. So my lying clearly isn't as bad as someone murdering. 
But here's the thing, a broken relationship with God is a broken relationship with God. And that's really what sin is, is we're breaking that relationship, which is why we need Jesus to constantly be pulling us back together, being that bridge between us and God. That's tough, I think, for us. To, it's hard for me. I'm not going to go, well, I lied to someone today. <gasps> that's as bad as that murder. We see those as very different things, but God doesn't. God sees sin as sin as sin. Now, granted, his heart breaks when someone is the victim of tragic sin, obviously. But when it comes to judgment and justice, it's it's really all the same. And it really comes down to, do we have a relationship with him that leads us to eternal life? I love that you brought up consequences because, you know, you and I are of the same generation. We are. <laughs> and I know your parents did this like my parents did teachers did this, everybody that, you know, had some authority over us would remind us constantly, your actions have consequences. And I think that kind of overall, as a society, we Mm -hmm. maybe have gotten away from that. And I also think that in the church world, we can err, you know, we don't want to be punitive, we don't want to be legalistic, but we can err too far in the other direction and overlook things and let things pass by where consequences needed to happen so that lessons could be learned, so that there could be, you know, a little bit of of justice. We think about the role models that our young people see today, sports figures, and, you know, some of them being arrested for really horrific domestic violence assaults, but they get to just keep playing. So what does it say about us as a society that not only do these people not seem to be getting the negative consequences we'd like to see, but they seem to be thriving? Yeah, that that is a scary part of our culture, huh? A development. Um, that is a phrase I still use, by the way. Actions have consequences. That hasn't <laughs> gone away for me. My kids here, anyone I've ever interacted with hears it. From a church perspective, I think it's why it's so important to have policies in place and to make sure people know them. When you're thinking of, you know, we both come from a children's ministry world. Why do we have policy? So that we could say, you knew ahead of time, this was a consequence for this type of action. I think it comes from an overreaction to a time in the, I'll say the big C church, where there was a lot of judgment. I mean, you and I have both heard really sad stories of people who were not accepted in a church community for things that that should have never been. You know, it was it was based on judgment. It was touted that we're I'm better than you, um, which usually when we say that, what we're really saying is I'm able to hide my sin. <laughs> you couldn't hide yours. I mean, let's be honest. And I think what came out of that was an overreaction. Like I remember someone joining a small group of ours one time and she was divorced and she kept asking me, is it okay? And finally I'm like, I don't understand. Yeah, it's fine. We're Most of us are married, but we don't care. And she finally shared that in her previous church, she'd basically been shunned and ostracized and couldn't find a small group because she was divorced. That to me was kind of the pendulum on one side of, yes, there are healthy ways to live But there's also life and we have to, you know, acknowledge repentance and life happens. It swung to, well, we can't tell anyone that they're wrong. And to me, the key as a believer is it's not for me to sit here and tell you what you did was wrong. It's to help you see that truth. It's to help guide you biblically to see, well, my understanding of the Bible says this is how God wants us to live. My understanding of biblical truth says this is the best way to handle this situation. And not to just sit, because no one wants to be told, you're wrong, you sinned, you messed up, sorry, 
but to come alongside someone and show them. But guess what? That takes time. That takes relationship. I feel like every time you and I chat, we bring this up to, to really walk someone through a, a sin, an action that was harmful to them or someone else to help them realize it and come to that acknowledgement on their own so that then they can move toward the steps of both repentance and reconciliation, if that's possible, seeking forgiveness. That takes time. I'm not just going to walk up to a stranger and be like, hey, let's talk about your sin and what it says in the Bible. You know, that takes coming alongside someone, which again, in this very busy culture, we don't tend to do. And we don't want to risk the backlash. Have I had to help people before see? Uh, I'm afraid what you're doing doesn't line up biblically. It doesn't always go well. Uh, Duh. You know, and most of us don't want to deal with that. And I know that I'm in a slightly different situation as I've, I've been a pastor at a church and that comes with, you know, some different weight and, and that. But still, I think it's, it's we don't want to get hurt. We don't want to seem like we're judgmental and we don't want to deal with the consequences if that person really doesn't respond well to, to what we're trying to share with them. All such good stuff. And you blew my cover. I don't know how many people realize that I was a children's pastor. Oh, once upon a time, because don't we all turn into PIs eventually? Absolutely. But you're right. At the same time, you know, if I was trying to reach out and share the gospel saying, you know, hey, I know some stuff you did that Jesus would really not be right. super happy with. <laughs> that's not going to go over well. No, no. Wow. And I think as a church, we're still learning that. But, you know, when we're talking about these difficult topics like yep. the nature of good and evil. It it makes me think about how sometimes people will say, you know, okay, so you're covering these true crime cases. You know, should we really focus on things that are are dark like that? Right. To me it's reality because of the Absolutely. work that I'm doing right now. Right. And how do you help people if you don't understand the reality yep. that they're in? And even when people don't want to admit it, I think that along with being a little repulsed by some stories, we're also a little bit fascinated with what does this say about human nature? Sure. And again, that whole idea of good versus evil, you know, it just made me think of a story that um, is very big in the news right now while we're recording this. And that is the murder of four young college students in Idaho. I hope I don't mispronounce anybody's name, but Kaylee Guncalves, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. And my apologies mm. to anyone that knows them if you're listening and I've mispronounced their name. But people have been fascinated with how this case has been going. And now suddenly we have someone charged in connection with their deaths. Right. You have to think, okay, is he disturbed? Is he evil? Can you be both? Can you be neither? Right. You know, what What do we make of these things when they really happen in real life? And we have to say, okay, God, how do I process my faith that you are good and loving with what I'm seeing here? How do we process the idea that maybe we can be a little naive sometimes? And I'm not suggesting sure. that, that these young people were or that they in any way lent themselves to being victimized. Nobody sure. ever does. No. But when we look at this case, how do we bring something positive from it in what we can learn, not just about safety, but about our faith itself? Right. 
I think one of the key pieces here, and, and let me just say, remember, I am a pastor. I am not a psychologist, so I can't get into the clinical reasoning or definitions of, you know, what how they define uh, the personality of someone who would do something like this. But when I think of it from a biblical standpoint, I'm reminded of that very silly SNL skit many, many years ago that if you are not our age, you probably won't remember it. That's Saturday Night Harvey. Live for any of you that are just that's right, way that's too right. young to know what we're talking about. was uh, the church lady and his favorite phrase was, Satan made me do it. And so I think like, again, we get into this weird sort of tension of that is where evil comes from. Evil people come from the devil his influence over them, you know, and you and I have chatted about this a little bit over the years. It's a topic we don't like to talk about because to be honest, I am now covered by the blood of the lamb. I am protected in that when I feel that spiritual warfare, I can absolutely say Satan be gone. I am covered. But not everyone does that. Not everyone recognizes when something is happening. I mean, you know, a few weeks ago that I reached out to you and said, we are feeling the weight of spiritual warfare in our family right now. There's a lot of believers out there who don't want to acknowledge that Satan exists, that evil is real. But it is the absolute opposite of the creation. You know, we know if you read the Bible, we know where that comes from. It's the fallen angel. It exists. And it is why that discernment is so important to know what voice are you listening to. And I think if I'm going to just dip my toe in this world here for a minute to say someone who is disturbed, maybe someone who does have psychological issues or someone who was abused in one shape or form as a child, does that make it easier for them to hear that evil force and to give into it? It seems like sometimes it does, you know, that they don't maybe have all the tools they need to recognize that is not a voice of truth and love and kindness. So where is that coming from? You know, not everyone has the ability maybe to do that. And this Um, alleged perpetrator, I'm not trying to say that I think he's disturbed, but I think in our society, we try to pass everything off as that. Like you were saying, they wouldn't have done that if they hadn't been abused or if they hadn't experienced some sort of trauma. And that does influence us. It does impact us, certainly. But like like you were saying, I think, correct me if I'm misstating, (laughs) but it comes down to who are you listening to? Yep. Are you listening to God or are you listening to Satan, evil, dark forces? And I'm going to talk a little bit after you and I wrap up about a Bible verse that just cuts right to the chase. And it says, you know, you're going to hang around bad people. You're going to get bad. Yeah. And so it does matter, not just, I think, who you're choosing as as friends, as romantic partners, as even workplace people, you know, where you work, because we spend so much time there. Yep. But just, am I listening to God or am I listening to Satan? And I think where the rubber meets the road is when you say, but I'm listening to God and I have surrounded myself with the right people and I've surrounded myself with people who also listen to God. And yet this thing still happened to me. That's where it gets hard. And that's where it comes back to that broken world. Like you said earlier, in order for you and I to have free will, so does everyone else. We, they get to have yeah, it too. Stink. I know. And I, I do think, I mean, that is tough. And, and there are people who get hung up on that and can never move past that. You know, and the Bible's very clear. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. He doesn't hide it. 
He doesn't try to trick us. He says, you will have trouble in this world. However, I have overcome it. And it comes right back, I think, to where we started in the beginning, which is there are times we're on this earth, the ending we want, the resolution we want will not happen. And that's tough. Our human nature wants resolution now. We want justice now. And it's not that we shouldn't try for it, but there are times where we have to just sit back and acknowledge through a conversation with God that we may not get that. I may not get that ending. I may not get that peace until I'm in heaven. I may not get healed. It's hard. The spiritual world and our human constraints often conflict. And I think the best thing we can do is exactly what you and I are doing is to to have an open conversation and say, we're not saying this is easy. It's right. easy to digest at times. And, and here's what I love about our God. He's okay if you look at him and go, I don't like this. I'm mad at you. This wasn't fair. He can take it. Like, it's all good. I think of when you're the victim of a situation, we know God's heart breaks for you. And I've never been in that situation. So I am certainly not here to say, well, you just need to trust God. Because I know there's more to it than that. But aren't we terrible about that, though? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're trying to give somebody comfort and we don't know what to say. And so we say stuff like that. My favorite one is, well, that's how God wanted it. Well, not always, because again, he's not a puppeteer. So God may have wanted it one way, but that person decided to do their own thing. (laughs) Well, exactly. I don't always say the perfect little Christian things. Okay, to say someone you know has gone through a very rough situation. They've yep. been victimized somehow. It's okay to just sit with them in their pain. Yep. And say, I don't know exactly how you feel, but I know that yep. this sucks. I know that it's terrible. And I hate it that you're going through this, but I'm here. Absolutely. Lori, you and I had a very dear pastor and friend named Dale Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And I am bringing him up because. I'm not sure I've ever met anyone in my life better at that type of shepherding. I never wanted to go to a funeral or a visitation without him. And I would just kind of follow him around. Like, what is he saying? Because I, in my early years as a pastor, especially not that I still get it right, but I would leave a hospital visit or I would leave a funeral and be like, that was the dumbest thing that I could ever have said to them. And it usually was exactly, yeah, we've all done it. But he just, I don't know. He had this presence and I do think it's a gifting. There are some people who are very gifted. The rest of us have to really work at and be intentional about what we are saying. When I think of the story for today, you know, at what point, how many points were there where someone realized something is off, but they didn't do anything? And I feel like every time we talk, almost every book you've ever done, but definitely the ones you and I have, there's a moment where there were signs that people ignored. And I feel like that's often what it comes down to is, you know, there's recognizing it and dealing with it, recognizing there is evil in this world. But I also think it comes down to, like we've said several times now, just being reminded that when you are a believer, our hope and our outcome looks different than everyone else. And I don't want to try to guilt anybody at all. This is not my intention. I just want to throw something out there for food for thought. Okay. We have to remember that there are two types of sins, basically. There are sins of commission. Yep. Things that you're doing that you're not supposed to do. And there are sins of omission. Things you were supposed to do, but you didn't. Yep. And I think, as you were saying, 
when we see red flags, warning signs, and we don't do anything, well, maybe there's a a little bit of sin to lay at our feet in that situation too. I have kind of a, it's not a funny story, but it's kind of a funny story. I feel like I sometimes err on the other side of that. I am hyper aware of other people and bruises. And my husband and I were at a particular restaurant one time many years ago, and the our waitress had a bruise on her, kind of up, like just down from the shoulder area. And because I had worked in radiology in college, I knew, like I'd kind of been taught by the by the text, what certain types of abuse, bruises, and breaks looked like in kids and women. And so it was very obvious it was a handprint bruise. And I became obsessed. And I was like, what do I do? I don't know this person. I have, and you know, I'd not say I handled it well. And again, a lot of it is how we do it. I'm not saying you go out there and confront everyone and make a big deal, you know, but I could have flipped her a paper. I did not do this. I'm telling you, I didn't handle this well. I just freaked out. I could have easily handed a paper that said, if you need help, here's my number. Because on the flip side of that, again, well, if I say something, she's going to think I'm crazy. Who cares if she thinks I'm crazy? I mean, looking back, that's ridiculous. If she's really in trouble, who cares if she thinks I'm crazy? So I am hyper aware. And sometimes I probably see into things that aren't really there. I think you and I both do that a little bit, Lori. But I feel like I'm the exception, not the rule. You know, oh, And so I, I do think, think so. again, there are subtle ways. There are appropriate ways to handle it. Just bull moosing your way through it isn't the right way. But it all comes back to if something seems off, trust that. Trust your gut. Trust the discernment that the Holy Spirit is trying to do something, show you something. And at the end of the day, I'd rather apologize and say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Now I'm not talking, calling DCFS or something on a whim, you know, but we've got to obviously do our due diligence. But most of the time we tend to ignore it and think someone else will handle it. Someone else will see it. Someone else will deal with that and help that person. Yeah, this year, I'm going to challenge you. Anytime you think that, be that person. Yep. Because I guarantee you, most everybody else is thinking the same thing, that someone else will handle it. Yep. Well, we didn't solve the the problem of good and evil, but I think we gave, no. we gave folks yeah. a lot to think about. And so hopefully, hopefully so. Yeah. Um, you know, share with us your thoughts. You can reach me, Lori, L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com. And just, you know, let us know if this has caused you to think, if it's caused you to have conversations with people. Yep. So thank you again for sharing with me. It's it's always awesome. And I look forward to when we can have you back. Awesome. Me too. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll just end by saying, I don't think it's a problem we can solve because as long as there are people walking this earth, there will be good and there will be evil. True. But as we say here at The Unlovely Truth, you can be a different kind of PI. Absolutely. A person of impact. So we we can't solve it, but we can make an impact. We can make a difference. Absolutely. All right. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. Our verse this day is a short one, but it is just so full of wisdom. It's from 1 Corinthians 15.33. It's really a great verse for anybody who thinks that the Bible is super hard to understand. And I get it. Some parts are more difficult than others, and they require more study so you can put them in the proper context. But this one is so very straightforward. So let me read it. 
Don't let anyone fool you. Bad companions make a good person bad. I chose the NIRV translation because it's made to be easy to read and easy to understand. And of course, context helps us so much when we're trying to interpret scripture. Now here, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's warning them against false teaching. He knows how very easily influenced we can be. Now in our case this week, Mike Mansfield went along with someone he thought was his friend, and he ended up paying for his misplaced trust with his life. We've all been burned by someone we thought was our friend, right? And we've watched it happen to people we love. I'm so grateful that it never went this far for me. And I want to help you to keep it from ever going this far in your life or the life of someone you love. To me, one of the biggest steps to accomplish that is simple self-awareness. I think in Western Christianity, we love to talk about love and grace and forgiveness and happy things like that, which is great stuff, of course. But the Bible has a lot to say about evil, too. So we need to know what God says is evil and what he says isn't what it looks like and acts like so we can recognize it in others and even in ourselves. That's right. I know we don't like to think about it, but we all have the capacity for evil thoughts and deeds. Now, outside of scripture, I think that the late Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it best. Yes, I am a world literature nerd, so I have actually read some of this guy's stuff, and he's very, very good. Listen to what he has to say about how understanding evil really means understanding human nature. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That's deep, but it's good. And so I'd love it if each one of us found somebody this week that we can have a real conversation about this. I think the first step toward being safer is being aware of what we have to keep ourselves safe from. And sometimes evil doesn't look like what we might think it should. If you like this episode, please check out some earlier ones. Listen to the amazing information that some of my guests have given me. And then Share your favorite episode with someone so they can start their journey as a PI, a person of impact. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex and the artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.